All right, y'all. Um, welcome again to RUF. My name is Chandler. I'm the campus minister with RUF, so I'm really glad you're here. Um, I want to welcome you again to RUF. We say this every week uh, because if you are, um, if you're new, this is a great introduction to to who we are. And if you have been here for a while, it's a great reminder for who it is that we want to want to be. Um, so RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. We are a community of people learning to love God and love Carson Newman together. So what we mean by that is, um, first and foremost, we're a community. We're trying to build a group of friends who know each other and love each other and care for each other um, and are just together and enjoy doing things together and being together. Um, and one of those things that we love to do together is go to conferences, like Winter Conference in a couple weeks. So sign up for that. It's going to be great. Um, it's at Drop Top Cove in Jasper, Georgia. It's going to be an awesome weekend. Um, we say that we're learning to love God. Uh, you may be here tonight, and you may, you may have been a believer for a long time, and you know Jesus, and you love him, and you're looking for a place to get plugged in, to be encouraged, and to grow in your faith. We want this to be a place for you to do that, and I think it's a great place to do that. Maybe you're here tonight, and you uh, have believed at one point, but uh, you're in college now, and you're a little bit unsure. Um, college is hard. Uh, even at a Christian college, things get a little crazy, and you just are asking some questions that we want to be a safe place for you to engage your doubts. And maybe you're just a skeptic and you saw that there was a free bucket of candy and you just walked, wandered in here. And again, last week, some people walked in, took candy and left. I was the only person that saw it. It was hilarious. But um, anyway, maybe that's you. And we're so glad that you're here. And we want you to be able to ask questions about Christianity, about faith, about God. We want you to be able to ask those questions in an honest way that we can engage them together. Um, we say that we're learning to love Carson Newman. We want to be for our campus. We want to be engaged in life on campus. And as we do events and things like that, we want to be for our campus. And, uh, and again, we say we do all this together. So that's who we are. That's what we're doing. Um, and I'm really glad that you're here. Um, last week, we started off with a, with a Saving Private Ryan illustration. And tonight, I um, actually cut this illustration from last week, so I'm using it tonight. I didn't write it out in a lot of detail, so I'm going to wing it to the best I can do it. But I've, I've seen this movie and musical many times. It's Les Miserables, so it may be like a like a like a Mississippi Rednecks rendition of it. But I know it's it's at least accurate with the story. So if you're familiar with Les Miserables at all, um, it is the story of a man named Jean Valjean who uh, was a uh, was a convict, and he gets out of he gets out of prison. But he has to bear this mark uh, of, a, of, a, of a convict for the rest of his life. He's got a tattoo of his prison number, which I don't remember off the top of my head, um, but I, I bet Lydia does. She, in fact, she, yeah, she just mouthed it right then. Um, but when John gets out of prison, he's doing everything he can to kind of, to kind of survive. And this, uh, this priest takes him in one night and gives him dinner, gives him a place to sleep. And in the night, Jean Valjean steals all of the priest's silverware all of his plates his forks everything he takes he wants to try to he wants to try to to sell it to get some money to to kind of establish himself and of course he gets caught and he tells the police that the the priest actually gifted it to him and so they take him to the priest's house and they throw him before the priest say hey he's got all your stuff they're they expect the priest to say no he stole this from me throw him in jail and the priest says no no my friend this was a gift and not only that like you forgot the candlesticks and so he gives him the candlesticks, and then he, and he says, hey, like, you're free, but let this, let this generosity, let this change your life. Let this be something that does not allow you 
to stay the same. And when we talk about in Romans 8, this whole foundation of 8.1 being there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ, this is the act of generosity that should change our lives. This is the act of generosity of God's grace and His kindness that makes us want to look and see everything differently. And in our sermon and sentence tonight, if you want to follow along, take notes, whatever, the things in all caps are sort of the points. No condemnation is not a point again for the third week in a row, but it is the foundation for what we're talking about. Because there is no condemnation in Christ, you are able to kill sin as a family member of God. Because there's no condemnation in Christ, if you are able to kill sin as a family member of God. And it bears reminding again that Romans 8 is Paul's outworking of the Christian life. And it's all built on this foundation of there being no condemnation left for those who are in Christ. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, every last penalty of sin is paid for. So we're looking at this idea of being able to kill sin. Verses 12 and 13, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this is kind of the, 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 the first thing that we see in this um, particular set of verses. And, and I want to point out first that, that Paul is not somehow saying that we're working this out on our own. That, that somehow that Jesus got us in by His grace, but now it's up to us to stay in. That, that God's grace, God's work in us, is actually... Um, is actually a continuing thing. It it works for the rest of our lives. John Stott says this. He says, If the indwelling Spirit has given us life, which He has, we cannot possibly live according to the flesh, since that way lies death. How can we possess life and court death simultaneously? Such an inconsistency between who we are and how we behave is unthinkable, even ludicrous. No, we are in debt to the indwelling Spirit of life to, get, to live out our God-given life and put to death everything which threatens it or is incompatible with it. So what Paul's telling us is, is hey, God, God called you and Jesus died for you and now the Spirit lives in you. And if this is true, that the Spirit lives in you, how can you pursue another life? How can you want to go and do something else? It's like, it's like marriage, right? If you're married, which I am, Um, pursuing other dating relationships is going to lead to the death of your marriage. Like that's just not, it's just not going to work. Um, And so, and so, um, but, but the flip side of that is cutting out or putting to death the things that hurt your marriage should theoretically lead to a long and healthy marriage. Maybe not necessarily happy always, but that's, that's kind of how it works. You, you put the other person first and you seek, in my case, I seek Leah's good in everything I do in order to try to preserve her because I love her because everything comes out of my new identity. Well, I guess it's not new anymore, but my identity that was new 10 years ago um, as, as a married person. And, and this is kind of like, um, I, I, yeah, I feel like that's a, that's a, good, that's a good image. And it's not, it's not that complicated, but it does have to be done in that order, right? Like we have to, we have to keep in mind that the identity change comes first and then the behavior follows. Because otherwise, it would be like you being a single person or a dating person and trying to like cut out everything that threatens your marriage like as a single person or a da- and that just 
doesn't work. And that's also why, like, if you're dating somebody and you treat them like your spouse, that it's not going well for you. But that's a different thing. There's a whole podcast series about that. But um, if you remember back to last semester, and if you weren't here last semester, I'm going to remind you. uh, In Romans 6, Paul tells us to consider ourselves dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. This is an accounting term that Paul uses. And he says, when you look at the balance sheet of your life, and you look at like the good and the bad and the sins and the righteous and everything else, he says you are to consider yourself, you are to reckon yourself, you are to count yourself as dead to sin. Consider that the debt is paid for and gone. And in Romans 8, Paul is telling us to treat our sin as if it were dead and as if it needs to continue to die. And this is the, the, uh, this is the, the fancy theology word, um, mortification, which means the, the putting to death of something. Um, and John Owen, John Owen writes, he says that we are to be killing sin or it will be killing us. But that's our responsibility. And a lot of times we think about fighting sin, we think about it in a couple of ways, right? We've got this, um, you've got this like masochistic idea that like we take pleasure in self-inflicted pain. Um, like if you think about uh, last week, we used the illustration of Odysseus like tying himself to the mast and like, like kind of like taking ple- like hearing the siren song, but also like taking pleasure and like resisting it. And, um, or, or this other idea of asceticism, asceticism, I don't know how to say it. Asceticism. We'll say it's asceticism where we resent and we reject the fact that we have bodies and we have appetites and we have things that we're drawn to of the world. And, and that's kind of like, uh, I talked last week about like how, like in my church youth group trips, we would always like throw Montana's jacket into the fire because, it represents all that is unholy and satanic. Uh, Montana's jacket does not represent what is holy and satanic. That's a joke. But, um, but yeah, like, 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 like we, we want to like burn all of our like secular CDs and movies and stuff. It's like it, asceticism is a rejection of the things of the world, but actually in an unhealthy way. And there was this whole order of like early church people called the ascetics who they would do crazy stuff. Like there was one dude who like went out into the desert and he constructed a pole that was like, 30 feet high and then just stood on top of it like all day because reasons right and that's and that's sort of those are sort of the two ways that we kind of think about like we you talk about fighting sin and you know it starts to sound kind of like hellfire and brimstone and those kinds of things but we talk about fighting sin and that's what we think about but i don't think that's what paul is saying here um john stott's definition again helps he says mortification is a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it that no imagery can do it justice except putting it to death. And he's, and he's stringing a few things together here, uh, or we're stringing a few things together here, because of the amazing gift of justification that God has given us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are to live lives of gratitude for what he's done. This gratitude comes from us being led by the Spirit. And if we're being led by the Spirit, we don't want to do the things that we know hurt Jesus. We don't want to do the things that we know break... What are you doing? Not, not you, Josh. Anyway, um, the gratitude comes from being led by the Spirit. And if we're being led by the Spirit, we don't want to do the things that we know are going to hurt the heart of Jesus. We don't want to do the things that we know are going to hurt the heart of God. Because these things are not 
violations of impersonal laws, um, but the but they're the wounding of a personal and loving heart. Um, some of you have uh, some of you have had the uh, the privilege of meeting the newest member of our family, Quinn. Uh, he is a he's a golden retriever puppy. He is wonderful, but it's funny because I I, I can so easily tell, like you, you kind of think that oh it's like just an animal, he's just a dog, but I can I can really tell like when I've kind of wounded his spirit, right? Because like I'll be like I, like he'll be chewing on one of the kids' shoes or something, and I'm like Quinn, stop! And as soon as I raise my voice, he drops everything and makes a beeline for behind the couch in the front room. And it, like it's it's hilarious. Like it's so funny, but like I can tell that I that I've wounded him, right? And a lot of times we think of sin as if it's like getting a speeding ticket. Right? Like you get a speeding ticket, uh you've broken you've broken an impersonal law. There's nobody that's sitting there in the courthouse thinking like, "Oh, my heart is broken that someone had the audacity to speed and get caught." Like nobody cares. Right? But it is a law. And so you You've broken this impersonal law. Uh, maybe you'll have to pay a fine for it. Maybe you have to go to driving school, get it off your record. Uh, your insurance will be raised a little bit. Um, you know, um, maybe if you're anything like me, like in my college years, you get a letter from the state saying, like, hey, stop getting so many speeding tickets because we'll take your driver's license away. Um, that was another life. But um, it, like, that's kind of how we think about it, right? But if I go home tonight and I speak unkind words to my wife or to my children, I've wounded people who love me and care about me. And this is the difference. That life in the Spirit is life with a personal God who loves us and cares about us. And our sin is not just a violation of His law, but it's a wounding of His heart. And remember, when we talk about this, that Jesus Jesus had really, really harsh words for things like this. In Mark 8, Jesus tells us that if we're going to follow Him, we have to deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Put your old flesh to death. Say no to the things that you know are wrong and bad for you. And y'all, the, the Bible is pretty clear on what sin is. Like if you, if you read the Bible, if you spend time seeing what it says about, about life and what God requires of us and these kind of things, you're going to walk away with a very clear idea like this is sin and this is not. And and if these things are leading you to sin, then get rid of them. See, Jesus says in, in Matthew 18, he says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. And these are, these are Jesus' words, like, you know, like nice, kind, like never offends people, like just chill with everything Jesus, right? Like this isn't fiery, like angry Paul, like this is Jesus. And he, Jesus is telling us that the world is full of temptation. It is full of things that want to invite us to break God's heart. And it's better to mutilate your body than it is to give in to them. And if you think back to Romans 2 and 3, Paul says that we're all guilty of sin, right? Some of us... Uh, some of us think that we can live by a moral code that is so strong and so rigid that we just won't even need God. Some of us believe that we can be so religious, we can be so good in our religious duties and in our, in our, in our, in our quiet times and our church attendance and our witnessing opportunities or whatever, that, that God will somehow owe us. Or maybe we believe that we can be our own judge and just do whatever we want. 
But the shorter, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a which is a document, it's a series of questions and answers that are designed to help us um, learn our faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism calls sin any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, and so that means that not following the law perfectly is sin. The outright breaking of the law is sin. And what Paul is telling us here, based on what Jesus teaches us in the Gospels, is that if it is sin, we are to kill it. And, I mean, let's get, to, let's get specific here. Like, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes with this next list of things I'm going to say, but like, you know. Sin, and sin is not just limited to the things that, we're, that I'm about to mention, right? But let's just say, like, you're... you're you're of, you're of legal age to consume alcohol, right? And you know that you can't drink a drink without drinking two or three more that leads you to getting drunk. Then stop drinking. It's not worth it. You can't close your dorm room door without looking at porn. Then figure out how to cut off access. Like, get rid of it. You, you can't hang out with your boyfriend or girlfriend without having your hands all over each other, break up. That's not what love is anyway. You can't hang out with your Christian friends without gossiping and assassinating people's character. Then find new friends. Like, that's what Paul is saying. Like, like these are the extremes that we take in killing our sin. And maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be that immediate, but it does require you to do the proper self-evaluation to know yourself and know your struggles. Because the fight against our sin begins with those things. It requires you to be honest with yourself. It requires you to be able to admit that like, yeah, those are the things that I struggle with, but there is at least a part of me, and maybe even in Christ, it's still a big part that actually wants to do those things that actually still enjoys those things. And that's what makes it so hard to put it to death. And that's not even beginning to touch on the struggle that, that the alternatives that fighting with our sin creates, right? Like, I know that drunkenness is a sin, but like, I really hate myself sober. I know that lust is not good for me, but I can't handle the rejection and being and the loneliness of being continually told no. I know I shouldn't be messing around with him or her, but I can't stand another Friday night by myself. I know that gossiping is deadly to the body of Christ, but man, it makes me feel so good to talk down to other people and about other people and to position myself higher than them. In the words of the great American philosopher Taylor Swift, it does begin with us being able to acknowledge that it is in fact me, that I am the problem, it's me. That this is where it starts. That the mortification of sin has to begin with us knowing that we are the problem. But y'all, here's the good news, okay? You are not alone. That, that Jesus isn't just putting you out there to say, all right, good luck, go do it. But he actually gives you his spirit to come and to live with you, to convict you and to work in you. And if you feel any of this, and you just, like, even if you don't have any idea, like, where to start or what to do, or you're scared to death of what happens if anybody finds out that, like, oh, you struggle with sin too? Then good, because that's the Spirit already working. That is the Spirit already working in you and convicting you of sin. Because, look, apart from Christ, you may feel 
you may feel a little bad about a situation that you're in. You may feel like you're down on your luck or, or whatever. But if you're in Christ, you can't continue in sin and be okay. You may struggle with it. You may and will fail. Promise you, you will fail. But if He is at work in you, you, you can't continue in it and be okay. But this is what's already been done for us. That there is no condemnation. That there is no condemnation that is left for you in Christ. So you can ask for help. That you can go to somebody and say, Hey, I know that I need to be killing this sin, but I have no idea where to start. Because the body of Christ looks at you and says, Great, let's do it together. Let's work on it together. And so, before we get to the next part, if that's you tonight, just the application of all this is like, if that's you tonight, find somebody and talk about it. Go back to your dorm, find a trusted friend, text me or Mary Ellen. If you're a guy, text me. If you're a girl, text Mary Ellen. Like, we want to talk to you about these things. We want to enter the fight with you. We want to see you grow in your faith and kill your sin. That's what we're here for. But we also, we do it with the Spirit, but we do it as family members of God. And this is where this whole thing gets even better. That you're not fighting sin as a servant who is trying to earn the approval of, of the Master. You are fighting sin as a son who already has every last drop of approval from your Father. Every last drop of joy and delight and everything else. And first off, yes, Paul does say sons. He's not being like misogynistic or like patriarchal or like whatever. Paul's talking to his culture. And in Roman culture, the family line passed through sons. And so Paul is not saying that only sons receive these blessings. He's saying that all believers, everybody who is in Christ, male, female, Jew, Gentile, everything, no matter what your distinction is, if you are in Christ, you have and possess the full rights and privileges of a Roman son. And, and, and that's, that's a huge, huge deal because, um, and actually like this is also getting into what we call the doctrine of adoption, that, that Roman fathers, like if they were disappointed with their sons or if they didn't have sons, they would actually go and like find someone else to adopt. And they would, and they would try to go out and get the best and the brightest to say, you are the one who I trust the most to preserve my family line. And this is what Paul is saying that God has done with us. That he is looking at us as his sons and his daughters to put his family name on them and to say, you will carry on the family name. But the second thing that Paul tells us is that those led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, like I, I, I kind of love this idea of being led by the Spirit. When I say that I love it, I mean, I'm kind of weirded out by it. Right, because um, I, I am from I am from Mississippi, and like when you get in like the really religious parts of the Deep South, and I think it's true up here too. But like God, like the Spirit leads you to do like all kinds of things, right? Like I remember like when I was in high school, and it was Senior Sunday at church, and everybody was like, "Oh, like my name's Stephen, and God told me to go to Mississippi College," or like I'm Jessica, and God told me to go to Heinz Community College, like whatever. And I was like, "I'm Chandler, and, and I, I guess I'm going to Ole Miss." Like I don't like. And I felt guilty. I was like, I don't know if God told me to, but like, it seems like a good, and you know, like, but like, like I've heard people go so far as to say like, the Lord, the Lord told me like what kind of socks to wear on this flight. And that led to a conversation about like, and look, I don't doubt that God works in all kinds of ways. Like, of course he does. I don't really know what to do with any of that, but I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about because the relationship of verses 13 and 14 
connects being led by the Spirit to putting sin to death. And Tim Keller writes that being led by the Spirit must be the same thing as putting to death the deeds of the sinful body in verse 13. You see, the Spirit, what the Spirit does is the Spirit leads us to hate the things that God hates and to love the things that God loves. Derek Thomas, um, Derek Thomas uh, was one of my seminary professors. He has a great book on Romans 8. He says that instead of a preoccupation with the issues of guidance, we should be concerned to ask the Lord, how can I live in a way that reflects the holiness of my Savior? How can I learn or will you show me how to deny myself? Or which sin or which part of a sin am I to kill today? And look, God is obviously concerned as your father with who you marry or like what major you pick or like what, where you end up working or whatever. And it's not wrong to pray for guidance on those things. And again, hear me say like, please pray for guidance on those things. Like that's a good thing to do. But a lot of times these kinds of questions overlap with, with these questions that Derek Thomas tells us to ask, right? Like, how can I live in a way that reflects the holiness of my savior? Well, like stop dating that guy. Like, Stop getting blackout drunk every night. Like, this is not that complicated to think to think through, right? It's like, will you show me how to deny myself? Yeah, he will. What am I what what part of a sin, what am I supposed to kill today? See, there is an entire focus in theology on the doctrine of adoption. And uh and John Murray's a theologian and he developed this idea called the um the Ordo Salutis, you don't have to remember that. You don't have to know this at all. But he talks about like, like there has to be some sort of way that salvation works itself out. And he included adoption as part of it. That it's one of the benefits of salvation. And this, the Shorter Catechism again says, Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And this idea of adoption, it says that we did not naturally have a relationship with God. That in our natural state, we were orphans and we were slaves. But because of Christ, God has taken us up out of the orphanage, out of the slave quarters, and he's put us into his house, into his family. And when I started, when I, honestly, when I started writing this, I was like, I was trying to sound like all like, you know, smart and like theological stuff. And, and all I could really do is just think about my own kids. All I could think about was my boys and, and, and the benefits that they have of being my sons. They have security that no matter what they do, they cannot be removed from our family. Even if something really crazy were to happen and like legally there had to be some sort of like separation, like biologically, they bear our name and our DNA. And there's nothing that they can do or say that's going to change that. That's the benefit that you have in Christ with God and his family. They have an intimate connection with us. This verb, or this word in verse 15, Abba, is not simply referring to the biological necessity of a male role in conception. It is a personal and intimate term, a lot like calling your father like dad or daddy. And in the same way that when I walk into the door every afternoon, Judson and Ford run to me and they yell daddy and they jump into my arms and they climb all over me. Like, that's how you get to relate to God. That is how you are called to know and connect him connect with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that Abba was a word lisped by a little child. Let us notice that the word cry, we cry Abba Father. It is a very strong word and clearly the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. It expresses deep emotion. 
what then does it imply? Obviously, it implies a real knowledge of God. That God is no longer to us a distant God. He is not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally only. All of this is possible to one who is not a child of God at all. Wait. Oh, yeah. Never mind. Our worship and praying are spontaneous. It is the spontaneity of the child who sees the Father, and not only spontaneity, but confidence. One thing, and I love him to death, it drives me crazy sometimes. Like, we're sitting watching a football game. Judson will ask me every five seconds, Dad, what's the score? Who's winning? Is the red team winning? We'll be watching an NFL game. He's like, which team is Ole Miss? I'm like, none of this. This is not in the same league. And, and, and the truth is, he doesn't care about any of that. He just wants to know that I'm still with him watching the game, that I'm still doing something with him. And this is the way that God relates to you, that he is with you. He is doing things with you. My kids have an inheritance. When we die, they get the family stuff. And yeah, the joke's on them because like I'm a preacher and we don't have any stuff. But like it's the same idea, right? Look at verse 17. The heir typically referred to the firstborn son. And that's the one who got the lion's share of the parent's wealth. So all of the things that the father possessed would be that of the firstborn son. And what Paul says here about us in Christ is that we are heirs with him. That everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of us. All the things that Christ looks at and says, those are mine, guess what? In him, they're yours too. And actually, every time in the New Testament, when God speaks, when you hear his voice, he says, this is my son, listen to him, in him I'm well pleased. Something to that effect. If you're in Christ, he's saying that about you. That I am pleased with you. That we will partake in everything that Christ rightly claims is his as the son of God. And let that be a a teaser for next week because we're going to get more into that. There's a lot more to say, but I, I want you to know, this is what I want you to know about all this. Throughout the gospels, Jesus routinely calls God his father. He does it repeatedly. Even as he teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, you know, that, that prayer. <laughs> he says over and over, he says, this is my Father. God is my Father. He is my Father. There's one notable time that he doesn't. And it's actually on the cross. That in his greatest hour of need and desperation, he doesn't call out to his Father. He calls out to his God. Why? Because he had to know the full weight of separation from the Father that we might not ever have to. That on the cross, Jesus calls his Father God in order that we could call God our Father. And that's what this is about. And I want to wrap it up with this. I love love The Lion King. I mean, the 1994 animated version. I I don't acknowledge, and the Broadway musical. I don't acknowledge anything else. But... If you know the story, um, Simba, late in the movie, he's on the run. Um, he's hanging out with Timon and Pumbaa, and they're just kind of like chilling, not worrying about anything. And Nala finally tracks him down, and she tries to convince him to come home. Come back to Pride Rock, stop running, and embrace your role as the, as the king and the protector of your people, and he refuses. And in the song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, Simba says so many things to tell her, but how to make her see the truth about my past impossible. She'd turn away from me. And like when you're a kid, you're like, oh, this is like this great love story, whatever. But like now as an adult, you're like, that's like the saddest thing anybody's ever said in history, right? 
Because you hear the shame and you hear the brokenness and you hear just the fear of losing even more than what he's already lost. What I've done, it's too bad. It's too embarrassing. It can't be forgiven. I can never go back. And so Nal leaves. But as Simba's, as Simba's going to do something else, uh, Rafiki catches him and he says, oh, he says, you, he says, I know who you are. You're, you're Mufasa's kid. And, and they have a little conversation and Mufasa tells him, come with me, I'll show you your father. And so he brings him down to the, to the side of the lake and he looks in the lake and, and, and Rafiki shows him his father in a vision. And Mufasa tells him, he says, Simba, he says, remember who you are. That you are my son, the one true king. Remember who you are. And y'all, what if this is the key to fighting sin? What if this is how we fight against sin in our lives? Is not, is not doing our best and white knuckling through it and gritting our teeth and hoping that maybe at the end of the day, God will be just pleased enough with how much stuff we said no to. But we remembered that we were sons and daughters of the King and He delights in us and He loves us. And that this is not about who you feel like you are or what you've been in the past, but remembering who you are now. Remembering what the Bible says about who you are now. That you are not a slave, but you are a son, you are a daughter who the Father loves, who the Son gave Himself up for, and the Spirit enables the fight in. If you're here tonight and you already know this and you already believe this, I want to encourage you to keep thinking about it. Right? Keep considering it. Keep thinking about what it means that you have this kind of access to the Father. But if you're here tonight and and maybe you've never believed this before, you're on the fence or you're thinking about it, whatever, doesn't this sound good? Like, doesn't all of this, like, guilt and shame of living in this weird, like, Christian culture that we live in, of, like, just trying really hard to, like, always do the right thing, like, isn't that just kind of tiring? And wouldn't it be nice to lay your head on your pillow at night and to know that you have a father that loves you and cares about you, and because of that, you can fight your sin? Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you again that you've given it to us. Thank you for these words here. Father, I pray for those of us here tonight who maybe we already know this, maybe we've trusted in you, and um, we don't really have a hard time thinking of you as our Father. Uh, Lord, um, would you remind us of this? Would you remind us that in Christ we are heirs with him? Lord, for those of us tonight who maybe... um, We don't believe this. We're struggling to believe it, God. Would you show it to us? Would you convince us of it? And Lord, I do do also pray for those of us here tonight who, um, for whatever reason, um, maybe through loss or just through the sinfulness of the world, uh, we don't really have a relationship with our fathers. Um, Lord, would you show us that you are the good father? You are the one who does love us and care for us regardless of the disappointment or the hurt, or whatever that our situations with our earthly fathers may have caused. Lord Jesus, would you do these things? It's in your name we pray. Amen.